Broadcasting from downtown Toronto, Canada, it's The Medicine Club, a new podcast about medicine, medical innovation, and medical culture. We're your hosts. I'm Dr. Samir Grover. I'm Dr. Kashif Perzada. I'm an emergency physician practicing in Toronto. And I'm a gastroenterologist based out of St. Michael's Hospital in downtown Toronto. So today we're going to talk about the topic that's on everyone's mind at the moment, which is the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think it's it's hard to be anywhere in uh, uh, the world and not have this as the first thing on your mind right now. Uh, there were a few things that we wanted to talk about with respect to COVID-19. Um, and as we are based in Toronto, the correlate that we have in mind typically is the uh, SARS epidemic, which hit uh, Toronto particularly hard in 2003. So I was a, a medical student at that time, and I got exposed to SARS and was quarantined. And I can tell you, and I think many people are experiencing this now, especially if you're in home isolation, just that dread and that angst you feel when, you know, you're waiting for symptoms to develop. So that experience touched me in a way that really only came out when this virus um, started making its appearance in Wuhan um, two months ago. Um, Harkening back to 2003, I was uh, a second year medical resident at the University of Toronto Hospitals. Um, and uh, I think it... Uh, it really touched to home seeing the fact that uh, SARS was transmitted quite a bit to medical workers. Um, indeed, I remember one of the uh, the residents that I was on service with when I was on the ICU at, uh, at St. Michael's Hospital as a resident um, ended up admitted um, in the ICU. Um, definitely a frightening time for Toronto, and all of us sort of felt the same sort of fear when we started to see uh, COVID-19 making the same moves inside the city. So Samir, what did um, there was a f- different ways that different physicians sort of handled the crisis, like especially with the stress of facing, you know, something that could potentially kill you. That's not a stress that we're used to in medicine, but physicians in the past did with infectious disease. Yeah, I think the big difference between uh, between uh, back then and now was the fact that it was um, really the first uh, pandemic that was getting people inordinately sick to the point they were they were in the ICUs, and there was a lot of uh, um, questions that were raised immediately about how we should approach things. Um, the, uh, the initial, um, indications we got, uh, in terms of seeing patients with suspected, uh, SARS were to try to bring them into the hospital as quickly as possible, independent of personal protective equipment. I remember when I was on the medicine rotation in, uh, in March of 2003, um, we were advised with every SARS patient to basically wheel them into a, a negative pressure room on the medicine ward as quickly as possible. And then everything could be handled sort of afterwards at that point, including ICU transfer. So that exposed you guys to... That- potentially would have exposed us, yes, uh, uh, immediately. And I think one day everything uh, uh, changed entirely and uh, the screening began at the entrances of the hospital. Everybody wore yellow isolation gowns and N95 masks, assuming that it would be aerosolized in terms of transmission. So kind of like that whiplash feeling that everyone's feeling after what's been going on the last week. Very much so, very much so. And then uh, uh, slowly protocols were sort of uh, raised and... uh, uh, the major expertise ended up coming from uh, from Hong Kong and from Toronto locally in terms of how SARS uh, should be handled uh, worldwide. So now it's kind of similar. We're getting expertise now from Italy and China, I guess. Yeah, the big difference is that uh, uh, we have social media and rapid information uh, transfer right now that didn't exist back then. And it's totally changing the way that uh, we, we're able to learn rapidly from colleagues around the world with respect to COVID-19. I, the one thing that we had very nicely in 2003 was the emergence of local leaders in Toronto that uh, um, uh, became uh, rapidly became uh, 
uh, people that we would turn to for attention, uh, for guidance on how to proceed. Indeed, some of them even got SARS and uh, were able to tell us their personal experiences. I'm talking about people like uh, Don Lowe and Allison McGeer at Mount Sinai Hospital that really became leaders that we would turn to. And then uh, the public health expertise of uh, people like Sheila Basrur, um was, uh, they were these were faces that were on TV all the time. They were providing up-to-date information as best as was possible with 2003 technology. And it seems uh, now that there hasn't really been you know, either acceptance or uptake of, you know, the official officials, like the public health officials. But you are seeing the emergence of uh, infectious disease doctors on um, social media and in uh, broadcast media, like excellent experts like Isaac Bogosh, Suman Chakbardi, and uh, Zane Chagla and um, Lucas Castellani. So they've really stepped forward and are providing a lot of useful information. And their you know, feeds on social media are very useful as well. Indeed, I think I'd argue that now Twitter is probably the uh, rapidest source of uh, information dissemination with respect to COVID-19. Um, indeed, it's, it's, it's faster than anything you can find in any other media. So, Samir, I, I remember you were in, uh, I think you were on the wards and an ICU duty during SARS. Uh, this is an experience that I think a lot of us will probably be seeing soon, seeing as how you know the colleges and other authorities are looking to draft physicians to work and the load of patients that are coming are going to be massive. We're going to need you know, two or three times the bed capacity, and pretty much every physician is probably going to be drafted to work on this. So maybe you can tell us what to expect and what to feel when, uh, when this happens. Well, I was, um, I was an R2 at the time, and I was, uh, I was very young. I was probably uh, 23 or 24 years old. Um, so um, there was a lot of bravado that went along with that, uh, sort of a sense that you could tackle anything that came along uh, your way. And there was still some supervision from uh, sort of attendings. Um, the... Uh, the time that I spent um, in the ICU is probably the most notable in my mind uh, because it came around the time of uh, specialty examinations for some of the senior residents that were on. Um, and they were pulled from the rotation, which left uh, a core group of, uh, of four residents uh, on the service. Uh, one of the residents ended up, as I mentioned, um, getting SARS and was uh, admitted in the ICU. Uh, and one of the other residents was pulled from his residency program. And I remember it was me and Sabod Verma, who's a, a, a cardiac surgeon at St. Michael's Hospital. The two of us were on one in two call at the hospital for about 10 or 11 days, uh, just as uh, reinforcements were uh, being called in. Um, this was probably the most uh, frightening time in my life because um, seeing a colleague get SARS was, uh, was scary. I think probably my mom was uh, uh, even more scared than I was. Um, and, uh, and just the, uh, that fear of not knowing exactly what was going on, what the prognosis was, what the rate of spread was, whether the uh, infection control mechanisms that we were using were actually making a difference. At the time, we were using full striker suits for intubation uh, of patients. Um, and we had uh, no knowledge of therapies uh, for SARS. All patients were getting steroids and ribavirin at the time. Um, and I just remember feeling inordinately uh, uh, helpless. Um, it was um, it's probably the most disconcerting uh, uh, time of uh, certainly my medical training and probably my life uh, to date at that time. Well, this is something that I think all of us will have to start getting used to. But thankfully, with, like we mentioned, Twitter, rapid dissemination of information, I think that fog of war feeling will be a little less. Every day, we're getting more and more updates from Italy, France, Seattle about ways to fight this. And hopefully, no one will have to go through that again. Yeah. Good. Um, we're going to take a short break now. And uh, next, we're going to go on to talk about uh, um, another buzzword that's on everybody's minds in terms of prevention, social distancing. 
And we're back on the Medicine Club. Um, the next topic we want to discuss was social distancing. Um, Kashif, uh, what, what, uh, we've seen this term social distancing or a related term physical distancing on social media and uh, in, the, in the news media. What, what exactly is meant by social distancing? So it's a public health term. Uh, I think it, it means that um, people need to sort of reorient their daily lives and try to prevent as much physical or near contact as possible. This involves, for many people, a rethink of the way they conduct their lives. So how do you get to work? And is it public transport or private car? If it's public transport, um, you know, you should sit apart from other passengers. Or, you know, if you can, use a private car as possible. Um, you should defer travel. We're already seeing signs that civil aviation is probably going to be shut down widely. We're seeing calls by many governments to bring their citizens home. Um, it also means that if it possible, you should try to work from home. Uh, try to set up telework, teleconferencing, tele telemedicine with providers, um, the other thing, and if you have to go out in public, you should try to stay at least two meters or about six, seven feet away from people. This reflects uh, the way that COVID-19 is spread, which is through droplets. So droplets are fine um, uh, mist particles, you can say, that come from the airway when you cough or sneeze. Generally, they'll drop after a certain trajectory at two meters. They can go farther, which is rarer. Um, so um, a lot of the messaging, uh, Kashif, that was sent across was um, not to use masks and to avoid masks when out in public. Um, that seems a little bit contrary to what you're saying. Like, wouldn't a mask that's in front of your mouth uh, stop droplets? I think um, there's a bit of a, a confusion here. I think um, experts have a lot to have the blame on this regard. So N95 masks, these are like the expensive ones which you see hoarding behavior. These are a very useful for physicians in the front line who are seeing a high volume of patients. Every doctor in every hospital in North America, as I'm aware, has to be fit tested. And when they're fit tested and fitted perfectly for each person, they do work. For the lay public, it doesn't really work very well because you might not have the right mask. However, so so uh, N95 masks are the masks that are used, for example, when aerosolized procedures are being done. where Like intubation, um, uh, suctioning. Uh, even inserting LMAs can create um, aerosolized, aeros uh, aerosols. Now, the, what we've been seeing with successful efforts at social distancing in Asia, so if you look at Hong Kong, um, Taiwan, South Korea, is that the entire population in public wears a mask. So, that, so if a mask can stop droplets from an infected person, and if someone doesn't have symptoms and could be spreading droplets over a few days, the logic is that if everyone's wearing a simple paper mask and stopping droplets, that should stop spread everywhere. Hmm. Now, um, um, working from home may not be something that's feasible uh, for everybody. Should, um, uh, should employers, should the government be making steps with respect to trying to uh, mitigate people going into the workplace for the purposes of uh, needing to go to work and then spreading uh, communicable disease? I think you no. Know, this is this is a big cultural change. Presenteeism, um, you know, FaceTime with people. These are concepts that um, should be less and less with the advent of great teleconference tools and with great remote work tools. I think you know we're in for a big societal rethink. Does someone really need to show their face at the office? Does being the last person who leaves work show that you're a harder worker? I think uh, this issue is going to be forced on us now. Um, I noticed that a lot of uh, uh, 
proactive messaging has taken place with respect to social gatherings. For example, the CDC um, announced today that they uh, did not recommend any large gatherings of greater than 50 people in the United States. And I think a lot of other agencies um, uh, locally and regionally have indicated the same sort of messaging. Even religious services have been affected, which is um, um, something that... uh, uh, that's been announced over the course of the past couple of days. So we've seen, um, actually, the Catholic Church has been ahead of this, and they've canceled Mass, um, and I think church services are across the world. We're seeing um, in the Muslim world, um, different groups of uh, religious groups are canceling the Friday Jummah congregation prayer. Um, we're seeing, you know, where we'll uptake on that. I'm hoping that with the increased seriousness of this, this crisis, that every religious group, um, every sports group um, will cancel these events. There are precedents in the past um, in many religions, especially during um, outbreaks of plague or cholera. So I think this is something that um, needs to happen. And you mentioned uh, uh, sports leagues. I think we all saw the uh, fantastic clip of Rudy Gobert uh, touching all of the uh, the microphones and being diagnosed with COVID. But uh, the NBA took all of that extremely seriously. And uh, it was the first of the major professional leagues in North America to cancel all of its games with the NHL and Major League Baseball following, following suit. But, but, but does all of this make a difference? Like, is there, um, you know, other, other parts of the world have, uh, have invoked social distancing before um, in the course of the past couple of months. Does, does this make a difference? I think the gold standard for us should be looking at the countries that have really wrestled this beast down. So look at Singapore, look at South Korea, look at Taiwan, and look at the number of new cases they're seeing. All of these countries started social distancing in January. Um, in Taiwan's example, they started contact tracing aggressively um, and managed to limit uh, uh, clusters of cases, even though they're only 80 miles from mainland China with a lot of business and social links. Yeah, you could try you know, invasive monitoring of contacts like Singapore does as well, but that might not fly in, in the West. But we have seen examples where this can work, and we can beat this. The term that's being used on social media is uh, flattening the curve. Um, what, what exactly does that mean to flatten the curve? So we know that this disease can uh, put approximately 5% of those infected into, onto ventilators in the ICU. We know that 20% potentially total of infected would need some kind of hospital therapy, including oxygen. In a recent uh, podcast from Milan, the more severe cases of pneumonia need oxygen FiO2 requirements greater than 50%. And a lot of them need pressure support ventilation, whether it's BiPAP, CPAP, or mechanical ventilation. This presents an enormous burden on any system. No system is designed to have 20% of its population need to be admitted to hospital. That would instantly collapse any system. And you're seeing that in Northern Italy right now. You're seeing also ICU beds saturated. So when you need mechanical ventilation, let's do just simple numbers. If there's 14 million Ontarians and, you know, if 20% of them get sick, that's, you know, 2.8 million Ontarians. There are at best maybe 100,000 beds in hospitals in Ontario and maybe 1,000 ICU beds. So you do the math right there. Um, so the, the, ter- the term flattening the curve then is to sort of allow that capacity to um, be extant and delay the presentations of people as they occur because of the fact that the infectivity of the organism would be less with social uh, distancing? That's sort of what the idea is? Exactly. Like with social distancing, those countries that I mentioned before brought down the r naught to below one and uh, the virus ceased propagating. You're just getting new outbreaks when new people arrive from outside of those environments. So 
it is possible. And then we can keep the ICUs and the, the inpatient beds from getting completely saturated. We can avoid what Italians had to do in which basically they refused to treat anyone above a certain age with comorbidities and just let them, you know, die, basically. That's sort of the uh, the horrible uh, state of what rationing of ventilators would sort of lead us to do as physicians is to make extremely difficult decisions on who gets a ventilator and who doesn't. There's an interesting document that came out of Italy, and I think Yasha Monk, um, the writer, uh, wrote in The Atlantic about it. Um, and we'll have a translated link to uh, copies of it. But basically, the Italians are considering this a natural disaster or disaster medicine. And they're prioritizing those who basically are most likely to survive and to live longer lives to get ventilators. So effectively, that means older folks above the age of 65 are not getting ventilators. Great. Um, We're going to take another break now, and then we're going to finish it up with uh, things that could be done by physicians um, at the time of the uh, COVID-19 outbreak, um, with particular emphasis on physicians in Toronto and Ontario. And we're back on the Medicine Club. Uh, The last topic we wanted for our our first podcast was uh, to talk about uh, uh, physicians and COVID-19, um, and specifically what uh, physicians uh, should be doing. And the first topic we wanted to discuss was personal protective equipment for physicians that need to be working in environments where they'll be exposed to COVID-19 patients. So I think there's a number of things. Working in the eMERGE, this is very front of mind for me and my colleagues. We've been debating about this for the last few um, weeks now. Now that uh, COVID is likely community spread in our community, definitely in the Amer- in the U.S., um, you should consider that any patient you're seeing probably has COVID. Any out-of-hospital cardiac arrest should be assumed to be a COVID patient now, and you should take precautions accordingly. So, so travel history is irrelevant now for Toronto now that there's community spread that's likely taking place in the city? I think definitely. Definitely anywhere in the U.S., um, definitely uh, in Ottawa, Toronto, um, we're starting to see cases that are coming without travel history. So assume everyone you're seeing has COVID-19. Now, this not need me make you uh, completely paranoid. It's just We know that since this is a droplet spread, wearing a simple paper uh, mask, uh, being very cognizant about what you take into the hospital with you and what you take out. Um, so these are this is my routine. I'll just describe my routine. So I change my clothes. I wear um, a set of scrubs to the hospital. I change into hospital scrubs. And I take with me only a few items um, from my car inside to the hospital, which is one pen, a um, my cell phone, obviously, uh, ID, and maybe a credit card to buy coffee. Um, these I um, put in my pocket in my new scrubs. I go to work. I wear a mask during the entire shift. I don't touch my face. I wash my hands after and before every patient. I try not to touch counters, computer surfaces, or if I have to use them, I wipe them down with uh, a cavi wipe. And then when I'm done, I change out of my scrubs. I take the few items that I brought with me, clean them with chlorhexidine, then go back to my car, drive home, uh, put those clothes into a garbage bag, launder them under a hot cycle, and then wipe down the steering wheel seat and console of the car. And, um, um, if these precautions are taken and uh, used uh, um, to the utmost, you think that the risk is quite minimal. So, Kash, if you mentioned um, uh, disinfecting your phone, how do you how do you clean your phone? So I remove it from its case. I clean um, using a cavi wipe or a Lysol wipe. I'll clean all surfaces of the phone and also the interior and exterior of the case. 
And uh, there's a there's a neat New York Times article from a few days ago about how to clean your phone to help against help protect against coronavirus. And we'll put the uh, the link below. Shout out to um, all the major news media that's made um, uh, all their covid articles uh, unpaywalled and the addition of news channels for free to uh, people that uh, didn't receive news channels on uh, cable TV in Canada. I think that's spectacular to disseminate information. Uh, the next thing we wanted to talk about was um, who should be working and how should they be working in the healthcare environment, specific to physicians. I think um, we're already seeing indications that um, a public health emergency has been called. Uh, in Ontario, at least, the College of Physicians has said that uh, physicians are required to provide assistance um, in these situations. And already we're seeing at, at my hospital, like uh, different specialists are being told that they're expected to assist in um, in inpatient work or in ICU work. And this is probably going to happen across specialties. So you're going to have ophthalmologists, urologists, all specialties will be drafted in to take care of the massive load of patients that are going to be expected. Uh, and what about the, uh, the patients that have emergent conditions that are unrelated to COVID? So what we've seen works um, is that there are a few models. You should set up your emergency room so that you have sort of a respiratory and a non-respiratory emerge. So anyone with respiratory issues, uh, any febrile illness gets routed to the respiratory side, and then your STEMIs and your strokes and everything go to the other side. Other um, In China and in Italy, they've set, up, set it up so that one hospital becomes the STEMI hospital or becomes the stroke hospital, and that keeps you know things, critical care flowing for those patients. That's a tremendous amount of infrastructure change, right? I mean, imagine something like that taking place in, uh, in any major city in Canada. It'd be uh, um, extremely, uh, require an extreme amount of planning in order to take place. And I don't see any sign that that's taking place right now, which yeah, makes no. me quite worried. Um, the, other, uh, the other thing is um, for, uh, for frontline physicians, um, um, as exist right now, uh, primary care doctors, even um, like I'm a gastroenterologist and we do a lot of primary care for uh, inflammatory bowel disease patients. A lot of these patients don't actually need to be seen face to face and there doesn't necessarily need to be laying on hands. So I think um, uh, uh, virtual services, um, um, seeing patients, for example, on Skype or on um, in Ontario, we've got the Ontario Telemedicine Network that's able to connect uh, patients across directly in an easy manner to physicians. It's something that probably should be done. So I think, you know, that's something really to bring front of mind right now. You know, use any service that works right now. Like, you know, I think with the public health emergency, a lot of regulations are thrown out the window. Um, the college even said so, like documentation requirements are gone. You know, if you need to take routine vitals just to cover your butt to do things, you don't need to do that anymore. Just do what's quick and efficient. Mm. Set up electronic systems to do renew prescriptions quickly and write sort of long pandemic prescriptions for your patients. But use whatever works. Excellent services like Zoom or Skype um, are excellent. Uh, try to document if you can, but this is an emergency. And uh, just a note about who shouldn't be working um, at the time. And I think... Um, uh, the consensus we were talking about just before we recorded this was that uh, um, there's a lot of physicians who work uh, um, um, uh, to quite old ages. Um, my division at St. Michael's Hospital is sort of a uh, poster child for that in Toronto. But we think that any physician over the age of 70, given the mortality rates that have been shown in other parts of the world for COVID-19, should probably not be doing um, care of COVID-19 patients or possibly not even be taking care of patients at all right now. I think the same goes for immunocompromised um patients. That includes chemotherapy, uh, biologics, um, 
Any Although I, I do note that there there may be some um, a protective effect of uh, anti-TNF type medicines where you don't end up with the same inflammatory cascade that leads to the ARDS. Uh, but I suspect... Um, I think they're using uh, tacrolizumab or yeah. luzumab. I can't pronounce it. Yeah. But I think, uh, I think um, in general, immunocompromised patients, I agree, should probably... Uh, immunocompromised physicians, I agree, should probably not be on the front line. I guess we were debating whether patient, uh, whether physicians with severe respiratory disease. Probably, you know, anyone with COPD, um, asthma, probably should be very careful about frontline work. Uh, pregnant patients, obviously, um, should be uh, very careful. I think it's very dangerous that I saw that they were trying to press retired personnel to come back to work, considering that they are in the utmost high-risk demographics. Yeah. So I think that shouldn't happen. Great. Well, thanks, everybody, for, uh, for listening to us. Uh, this has been the first uh, podcast to the Medicine Club, and uh, we hope that you enjoyed some of the content. Uh, just a little bit about uh, how we plan on doing things. Um, our original plan, um, and we'd been planning this before uh, the COVID pandemic, was to post content either on audio or on video on uh, two, two weekly or monthly intervals. But I think we'll be uh, presenting in audio a bit more frequently just to disseminate more information with respect to COVID. Um, if you'd like, please follow us on Twitter. Um, the Medicine Club is at the Med Club TO. Um, I'm at Samir underscore Grover. I'm at Cash Prime on Twitter. And we'll be leaving uh, the notes to all of the um, articles and references that we mentioned during the podcast um, at the Med Club TO Twitter. Uh, so thanks, everybody. And uh, um, that's, uh, that's what we've had to present for episode one, uh, A New Hope. Uh, sincerely, Sabir Grover, Cash Prasada, and we're the Medicine Club.